Well, very, very nice to see you, some of you for the first time, others uh, again. It's very nice that you're all here. This uh, particular topic today is so wide open that I really need your help a little bit to figure out exactly where we're going to focus it and how we're going to do it. So I would like to start just by soliciting a few questions, not necessarily that I'll answer them all one by one, but if you could give me uh, some idea of what you hope that you might learn today or some particular issue that you would like to have resolved, that'll help me find a place to begin. So, who's the first volunteer with a thought or a question you wanted to ask? We always need one to break the ice. You get lots of good karma points if you're the first one. <laughs> yes? Family. Say it, family? So, meaning, how does family fit into the spiritual path? Oh, no, that's a big one. That'll take the whole morning. Okay, second one. Is it bad to be ambitious while still on the path? You have to say it one more time. Is it wrong to be too ambitious even if oh. you're on the same path? You mean ambitions for success in the world? That's actually a very good question. I'm echo echoing to myself. Do I need to stand back a little? No, no. I'm, my, my own voice sounds a little odd to me. Thank you. Okay, ambition, family. Okay, what other small questions do we have to deal with? Yes. <laughs> and I'm joking. Those are <laughs> what would you advise so that we can run this marathon of spiritual journey instead of running in the spring? <clears throat> the question is, just a second. <coughs> the question is that uh, the spiritual path is not a hundred yard dash. It's a quintuple marathon. And how do we have the endurance and not just burn ourselves out so fast that we lose everything? I'm phrasing it more than you are, but I know that's what you asked. Any other questions? Yes. Um, how to keep the whole of Maya loosened up? Because life is so materialistic in today's world, and it's really hard to prioritize the spiritual practice. And so how to just... <clears throat> what to do about Maya? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we're a very... Uh, we're a very tiny, spiritual life is a very tiny little bit of fluff on the top of this incredible, ever-moving material world that demands so much of us. How do you maintain anything? That's, a, of course, a very real question. Family, ambition, marathon, race, Maya. Okay. Was there a question? Did you have your hand up? Yes. How do you, like, do you need to like, control yourself like, all the time? Or do you, like, do you see the change? Like, when will you be able to see the change? Uh, it's, it's, I mean, there were so, several questions in that. Uh, one of was the question of self-control, and, and you didn't ask it this way, but how much is enough? How much is realistic? Do we <clears throat> transform ourselves merely by restraining ourselves? Or is there another way that transformation takes place? That's a good question. That's really the whole question. That's the whole question of the spiritual path. <clears throat> what is it and what does it actually look like? Because that's part of why we get so confused. Yes, sir? How do we 
remain peaceful at all times? How do we remain peaceful at all times? Mm, I don't think I can answer that. <laughs> I can tell you how to re remain peaceful more often than you used to. That's about the best I can give you. But we'll work on that. I think we're getting about enough, but is there any, anything else that's important that hasn't been said? Dharana. Correctly recognizing how do we know and trust our inner guidance? How can you tell the difference between just what I want, which feels so good and so right, because of course I want it, and what might be good for us? Yes, and they're not always antithetical. As Swami said to me once, God does not necessarily want you to be unhappy, Asha, he said. That's your idea of things. So sometimes they actually match. Padma. Well, you first respond to it with gratitude because you were whether you knew it or not. <laughs> but the second question is how to restart. Okay, I think I have enough, but I really do appreciate it because it gives me an idea of where we should be and what we should do. So let me just gather my wits about me here. I don't know if this is a... Can I have a tissue from someone? I'm going to have to call <coughs> This is something that happens every time I start talking. I don't have a voice, and then I find it. I don't know if it's psychological or physical, but... Okay, there. I think we'll be fine now. I just always have this dramatic beginning. <laughs> I'm going to just sort of talk all around this and then we'll go back. I, mean, I hope to take more questions, just be able to actually answer your questions. But what you all are describing is, is, not, is not the problems of the spiritual path, it is the spiritual path. You know, this is, I think the first thing that we have to understand about being on the spiritual path is that it isn't different from life and it isn't different from who you already are. A, lo a lot of what happens on the spiritual path is that we imagine that this is me and this is the spiritual me. And this is the me who I was before and this is the me now that I'm on the path. Or the me after I get Kriya or something like this. And we end up so um, fragmented from ourselves that we, can, we honestly can feel and tell that we just don't have access. We, we live a lot of times in just a state of confusion. Swamiji often would say to us that if you can't find the answer to the question, often you haven't either, you either haven't asked the right question or you haven't actually formulated the question clearly enough to be able to draw a superconscious solution to it. And I've seen a lot on the spiritual path that um, people ask the wrong question. Um, because it's easier to try to work out someone else's karma often than it is to try to work out your own. And what I mean by that, it's easier to make up a person who you think you're supposed to be and then struggle to plug yourself into that person than it is actually to acknowledge what the reality is of my own destiny, my own desires, my own limitations, and to really actually have to face what I'm going to have to actually deal with in this life. Ambition, Maya, family, all the questions that were asked, lack of perseverance, just many different things. 
Um, Master, when Master founded the Self-Realization Fellowship headquarters in Los Angeles, he took over a big building that is still there. For those of you who have been to Los Angeles, the Mount Washington Center there. It was a hotel. Um, that the building was built as a hotel and used as a hotel and then taken over as an ashram, which is actually hotels make great ashrams, so it was, a, it was a right place, a good place to do it. But when Swamiji was living there, he made the comment that somehow the vibrations of the hotel seemed to persevere in that many devotees, even those who took initiation as disciples, would check in for a little while and then they would check out again. And from our perspective of having uh, enough decades to have passed since Master was living, it, we find it incomprehensible to imagine that somebody would have had the good karma to get all the way into the ashram and that they wouldn't stay there. Now there's several things that are, were part of that equation which are just worth contemplating so we can be more realistic. Master didn't publish Autobiography of a Yogi until 1946. And he came to America in 1920 and he founded Mount Washington, I believe, about 1925 or something like that. And before Autobiography of a Yogi was published, if you think about it, all, all you had to know who Master was was your direct perception of him. And we might think that our gaze would be crystal clear but the masters don't just sort of walk around with a big sign on that says, I am an avatar, you know, and that you're supposed to be, and these are, these are the ten ways you're supposed to relate to me. They just walk around being themselves. And often that uh, the elevated nature of their spiritual consciousness is, they, they, don't, um, they don't assert it the way the worldly person asserts the ego. It, it's, it's a whisper from eternity, to use Master's own words. They vibrate and we have to match that. I certainly saw that in the many years that I lived with Swami Kriyananda. Um, many years of life I shared with him. I, wasn't always, I didn't always even live on the same continent that he lived on. But especially at the very beginning, Swamiji conscientiously presented himself um, in ways that, that entirely masked what was going on on a spiritual level. He did that partly because he needed to be able to live and move through this world in a way that didn't cause a constant reaction from the world around him. He had a great deal of work to do. He also really wanted people who had the discernment within themselves to be able to tell who he was because otherwise the commitment would be only external. And Master was very much the same way. And he came to America at, uh, I mean, it wasn't even India where people would know what they were seeing when they saw him, or even Italy with a fine tradition of saints. It was America. And he was so odd. And, and no one had any context for knowing who he was supposed to be. I mean, the, the knowledge of Eastern religion and Indian teaching was not unknown in America, but it was very, very small and just in very certain areas and Master was just going into the major American cities and putting out this phenomenal energy. Thousands and thousands of people came to see him. Only tiny numbers of those actually became disciples. 
But among the reasons why so many people came to see him was he worked miracles on the stage. He did miracles of feats of strength. He did miracles of bodily self-control. He would, is there a doctor in the audience, he would say, and someone would come up and one doctor would take the pulse on this side and the other doctor would take the pulse on this side. And they would be different and then he would stop one and then he would start another. You know, it was pretty exciting. One of the talks he gave, this is my favorite of all the topics I heard, you know, uh, physical healing by super conscious methods, and then parentheses it says, bring your sick friends. <laughs> so it was, he was quite something. But from that kind of, uh, you might even call it showmanship, just to awaken people to this possibility, it, that wasn't the real path. The real path was self-transformation, but that got people's attention indeed, and it did get people's attention, and it made them, it, it, it knocked people out of their normal way of thinking. Um, but then they had to learn something that was completely different. And so Swamiji commented that what, what happened with a lot of people who were around Master in those early years, this is how Swami put it, in the presence of, of that much light, everything around that light is illuminated, which means in the presence of that kind of light, one's own nature is illuminated. And Swamiji said that his experience was that those who came to Master and left, it was not even for lack of appreciation of who Master was, it was because of an inability to see oneself that clearly. Because when we see ourselves that clearly, then all of a sudden the, the magnitude of the job in front of us, you know, comes to light, or the realization that we are not who we would like to be. And m most of the spiritual path, oddly enough, is really not about the master at all. It's really about our ability <clears throat> to be honest and comfortable and realistic and strong enough in terms of who I actually am. Now, one of the, as I was hinting, uh, mentioning lightly or at the beginning, we tend to have an external idea of what it looks like to be a spiritual person. Um, you know, spiritual people are this way. They're always peaceful. They're um, brahmacharis. They're humble. They don't have any worldly ambitions. They get to live alone in, in caves, whatever it might be. We, ha we just have this picture in our minds. And often, we'll have a picture in our mind, any picture at all, as long as it doesn't look like me. <laughs> because it's the mind finds it easier to sort of pick up some form. And this is the, the challenge of self-realization. And this is the specific challenge of self-realization, which was the reason why all of these masters incarnated. Because we're shifting out of this um, long history on this planet of Kali Yuga. And Kali Yuga has many characteristics. But one of the salient characteristics of Kali Yuga is reality is defined by form. 
you can you look at the way things are made. Now look at society right now. I mean, think of as simple an institution as marriage. Now it's it's begun to creep into India. It's rampant in America. That just the whole institution of marriage, which has always been there, which has been the cornerstone of society, marriage, family life, all of that, it's just disintegrating, just completely disintegrating. And it's, as I say, it's begun to creep into India and it's rampant in the Western countries where you just can't rely on it. Swami made a very interesting statement about marriage that I, I, I found. It's a very neutral explanation. He said, in a transition between yugas like we're going through right now, change happens very rapidly. I mean, technology is an external symbol of deeper levels of shifting. Repeatedly, when I've, ha I've been asked to speak about the early years of Ananda, which have been happening a lot, both because Ananda itself has celebrated its 50th anniversary and because I've also published this book, which is a long history, I have to say, and email hadn't been invented and the internet hadn't even been dreamed of because otherwise certain things don't make any sense. We didn't have telephones, cell phones didn't exist. You know, when Swamiji was out of the country, I actually, I got these letters on this, you know, tissue paper. He would write me tissue paper letters and they would cross in the mail. It's just like, who writes airmail letters anymore? I mean, why would you do that? You just either dial in onto WhatsApp or you email and it's just like that. So we're just all in touch with each other all the time. But just tw 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's just it wasn't even possible. Those who are younger who just grow up with these technologies, it's, well, I remember there was a little vignette in Reader's Digest. Do they have Reader's Digest in America? It was just a little sort of homey magazine. I really liked it. And uh, a granddaughter is sitting with her grandmother in the kitchen, and she says to her grandmother, Grandma, which modern convenience do you like the most? She's thinking of, you know, the blender or the microwave or something. Grandmother walks over and turns on running water. You know, just to be able to have water just like that was like for her, like this is such a... a you know, the, the granddaughter never even considered not having running water, not being able to flip on the lights. You're just born into that world and that's the world you live in. But these technologies alone have just completely turned everything upside down. I mean, not the least of which is the world invades the home. And whereas parents used to be able to control what their children were exposed to, the child just goes up into his room and turns on his computer. And you have no idea what your child is accessing. And I don't even mean negative things. They can just know everything. They could know more than we know, more than their parents know easily. And all of these rapid changes means that people, you know, start in one direction in their life, and then they're exposed to so much more and then they can choose another direction that it, there's nothing malicious about it. It's just suddenly the possibilities are enormous. So whereas, Swami was saying, two young people could start out in their lives in, in sync, so many things can happen so rapidly and so many changes. You know, a woman or a man gets a career and suddenly that career takes them to Europe or takes them to another part of the world and they just are exposed to situations they never knew about and then they come back and they're not in sync anymore. And so people who used to be able to walk a lifetime together just suddenly find that there's, there's just simply no, no point of union. And to make it even more, there's no structure 
it, that, that, to hold them in that. There's no external reality to hold them into that structure. I mean, it used to be unthinkable for couples to separate or, or for a, a, a child to be born without a stable family around it or for people even to live away from their parents. Now, because I live in Silicon Valley, I mean, everybody's children are in Silicon Valley. Their parents, I mean, it's really quite fun. You know, they're this young, very mo- these young, very modern, tech-oriented Indian people will come and they'll deliver to me their parents <laughs> who are visiting for a few months and need something to do. <laughs> and so they'll give them to our temple and, you know, we'll, we'll entertain them and keep them sort of somewhere that looks more familiar to them for a little while. And the, the, well, the second generation can go do what it has to do. I mean, it's not always like that, but it's amusing. I see them coming. I, walk the, I watch them walk and, oh, this must be your mother-in-law. She's visiting from Chennai. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so pleased to meet you. And then that, that's what's happening with us. So when we're in a yuga like this where everything is changing, but, but the good news, and this is why the avatars came for this period of time, is whereas we all used to be able <clears throat> to live sort of half asleep. I mean, it was more comfortable, it was less frightening, it was less disharmonious, but I'm not sure it was better for us spiritually. We could just live half asleep. We could just find the slot into which we were supposed to step and then we could just follow it. We knew where it was leading. And we might think nostalgically about that or longingly about that because it looks easier. There's no question about it. It looks easier because it, it doesn't compel us in the same way to, to claim for ourselves who I am and what my values are. I have a nephew who's now 30. Um, he's just passed the bar. He's an attorney. He's you know, following in, in a, a way that is very suitable to him and it's working well for him. I, would, <clears throat> I didn't raise him, but I saw him often when he was younger. And because uh, his mother is my sister, you, you're sort of like it's a wonderful relationship that way because you're, you're almost his mother, but not quite. You all know, know how that works. So you get a lot of the privileges of mother, but a lot you don't have as many of the burdens. So, <laughs> and he was could sort of tell I was almost his mother, but not quite. And it was very fun actually. So I, I talked to him a lot about what he was doing and what he was thinking. And I got, as parents do, and you all know this more than I, because I don't have children. You get an insight into that world. And at various times, he said things to me just in the context of the life he was living in as an American young man. And I remember once he said something. No, actually, he wanted me to watch this movie that he thought was really good, and I lasted about 10 minutes. And it was just so, uh, I don't know, it was so lacking in values that I actually said, you know, not only can I not watch this, I don't want this even showing in the house in which I live, you know. You're just going to have to go somewhere else and see this. And it wasn't, it wasn't even that bad. It was just modern. You know, and that sort of modern cynicism that people take for granted. And, and then I thought, my, if you become this curmudgeonly old lady, this young man is never going to talk to you again. <laughs> Which didn't really seem like a wise idea. So I had to try to think of what I could say that might be helpful. <laughs> and so I mentioned to him that it seemed obvious to me for his generation, you know, young Californians is really the cutting edge of both innovation and destruction, um, I said the value is that 
your generation is getting no help from anywhere to develop its values. You know, absolutely all walls are down. All walls are down. So anywhere you want to go, you can go in this society now. And fortunately, he's a very honorable, very strong, actually you might even say old-fashioned kind of man. I mean, he's a wonderful man. But I said, your generation, all walls are down, which means whatever values you develop, you will develop them from the inside and they will be yours forever. Now, this is what happens when we're in times like this, and this is why Master came. And this is why Master actually started his work in America. Because in a, in a very real sense, it was a blank slate. And all of the traditions that were associated with any kind of India-based India spiritual teaching, they just simply didn't exist. As, as Master himself said so charmingly, in India, people understand that it's hard to realize God. And so they'll think, maybe next lifetime, maybe next lifetime. He said, in America, people had no idea that it was difficult. <laughs> and they would say, sure, we can realize God. Sure, we can do it. <laughs> and he said, because they didn't have that mental obstacle, you know, they could just sail right into it and make it happen. And that enabled Master to really, um, you might say, articulate the ideas and clarify it and, and, and it was the right place to plant it. There's many other more subtle reasons. America is the Dwapar, it was, is a Dwapar Yuga country. The values in, in America are being distorted now because of the chaos that we're all in. But the real values of America are unique. You know, the equality of all individuals, completely without caste, without class, that everyone, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their, their creator with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the mission statement of America. That's entirely Dwapara. And so self-realization is, is it's the same. It's that we're endowed by our creator with these rights. It has nothing to do with Maya. It has nothing to do with family. It just is who we are, and this is who we're meant to be. That's the really good news, and that's the terrifying news. And that's, that's the hard part of this spiritual path, especially self-realization, which is you can't just find the formula and follow it. You can't just hire the priest and have him do the mantras. You can't just <clears throat> meet the standard that the church lays out that <clears throat> tells you that you'll get into heaven instead of having to go to hell. It's like all of those are gone. There's only one measurement, and that measurement is our actual consciousness, our actual experience of our own reality, and there simply is no other. And no one can... Um, plant that in you except you. In, at the end of the life of Jesus, well, Swamiji told us it, at the end of Yogananda's life, he said when, when a master knows he's getting ready to leave this world, he often sort of begins to push the world away a little bit. This is how Swami put it. And Swamiji was with master only for the last three and a half years of his life, but there had been others who had been with him for many years. And Swami doesn't write explicitly about this in the path. He only hints about it in one place in the path, Swami's book about life with Master. 
where he, he refers to a scene he witnessed with Sister Shraddha, who was one of Master's longtime disciples. And Shraddha was in the hallway, and she'd come out of Master's room, and she was weeping. And she said, nothing I do seems to please him anymore. Nothing. I just can't please him. <clears throat> and when, when Swami, excuse me a moment. And when Swami was talking about this, <clears throat> he was saying that Master needed to sever his ties with this world, and he also needed to prepare his disciples to have a deeper sense of relationship with him. And it's, it's interesting, Swami also said, there was an, another place in the path where he talks about, he's talking to Master about a certain disciple who's having some difficulty and may leave the ashram. And Master says something like, Satan is testing the organization. And Swamiji says to Master, really, sir, is that what's happening? And Swami, reflecting upon it later, says that when, as long as Master was alive, he could keep all kind of disparate elements together. You know, people who were extremely eccentric and weren't in tune with anyone else, they could all have a direct connection to him, and he could hold it strong like this. But after Master died there needed to be a more unified and stronger core and many of those uh, oscillating elements it would have been the organization wouldn't have been strong enough so it wasn't in any way cruel it was just for for certain people their karma was with master when he was in the body and 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 it was time for them to move into whatever their next phase of spiritual learning would be in the life of jesus we also see that very interestingly um, at the end of the at the end of Jesus's life, it, in the Bible, it famously says he began to tell his disciples that, that he said, "You have to eat my body and drink my blood." And now, decades later, the Christian churches have explained to you that this wafer is the body of Christ, and this wine it represents the blood, and they have a, a long story about the sim symbology of it and how at the Last Supper Jesus shared the wine and broke the bread and that's what it was all about. That all came way after because when Jesus was actually saying it he didn't explain this is symbolic, this will be a ritual for my church, you know, nothing. He just said you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Now Master explains that, that the body of, of Jesus is the vibration of Om, which is all of creation and blood is the life force of Christ's consciousness, that it was metaphorical for those who had ears to hear. Now, in the Bible, I love, I love the very realistic, oh yeah, that's how it probably really happened, phases of the Bible. Because Jesus is telling them to eat my body and drink my blood, and then the disciples are walking out, and the disciples say one to another, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> I mean, you can see it just like that. If I stood up here and said something exceedingly wacky, like, for example, if you'd never heard it, eat my body, drink my blood, you all would go out the door and say, she's nuts, <laughs> you know? It's like, I came here to learn something helpful, and that's the wackiest thing I ever heard, you know, let's go have coffee. You know, let's just get out of here. And so they said, this is a hard teaching, and then the Bible says, and from that point, many walked with him no more. So now there's another scene in the Bible related to that where Jesus speaks to Peter. 
Now, all these centuries later, we have elevated Peter to this, you know, untouchable role of perfection. But Peter was actually a serious disciple who was working toward his own self-realization, and it wasn't automatic for him. So Jesus says to Peter, and I love to think of these stories because I lived so long with Swamiji, and, and I mean, in many ways Swami was a Christ. He wasn't an avatar, but he had that level of consciousness. And so I know how even these great souls, they, the interactions are still very human, and they're very accessible, and they're very real, which is the whole theme I'm trying to weave here today. This is really about real people which is to say me and you as real people. This is not some thing that we get a costume and we get to put it on. So Jesus says to Peter, here's the circumstance, lots of people are leaving. And the Bible very delicately doesn't mention who all those people were, but you can depend on the fact that some of them were people that were really integral to the Sangha that nobody thought would ever leave, but have now not been able to pass this test. It must have been that, because Jesus turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave me too? Now, he wouldn't have asked that question if it wasn't a real question. And, and you can just imagine, Peter himself has to stop and think. But his answer is perfect. His answer is, where would I go? Now, there's so much subtlety in that answer. Because Peter doesn't say, oh, I understand what you mean by eat my body and drink my blood, and this is what it means, and this is what, you know, like this, which is what dogmatic religion wants you to believe, because they take all of these saints and masters and they elevate them to a level of unreality where we don't know what to do with what they think. But, but Peter just says, where would I go? So what Peter is telling Jesus is, I have an experience of who you are and what this path is, and I don't understand this any more than anybody else does. But I know what I know, and I will live by what I know, which is I belong to you and you belong to me. Where could I go? There's, there's no place that I could go because this is who I am. Now, this is the essence of what it is to be on the spiritual path is that we must build our spiritual life on the basis of what, what I know to be true. Not what the master says is true, not what the person sitting next to you says is true, not what the books say is true, none of that. It has to be what I know is true. Because if you're not standing on that solid ground, there's, you're always vulnerable to something tipping you over. And... Um, <clears throat> Oh, Sister Gyanamata has, has a way of putting it, and she's Master's most advanced woman disciple. Her book, God Alone, is really one of the greatest scriptures. It's, it really, it's right up there, right behind Autobiography of a Yogi. It's just fantastic. But she, she, and she, she articulates this more succinctly than I'm going to, but this is the essential point. It's the same point I was just making. This is how I read it. You have to, this is what the teaching is. You know, I'm utterly devoted to Master. I have no other wish but this. I'm a Kriya, Kriya Yogi. I practice these teachings. I believe in this. All of this stuff. You can just list it all out. It's really beautiful, and you can say it. But you have to also ask yourself, in, in the privacy of my own heart, what do I absolutely know? And the way she puts it, I, the way I think of it is, you keep backing up. I mean, here's the external picture, but internally you keep backing up until you can stand on a piece of ground 
that, that nothing can ever take away from you. I'll give you a very specific example that I've had to work through, had to work through in my own life. I'm a, I don't exactly, I'm a little bit of a turbulent person, I, especially I used to be in my younger years. I just kind of noisy and a little unpredictable and like this. So I, I never could fit really well into any kind of a mold. That's one of the reasons I think Swami just, you know, kind of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and just kind of held on and, you know, then I could do whatever I wanted. But he was always holding on like that. And he knew that my loyalty to him was strong enough that I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to break that tie. Um, but as a consequence, I, I often was, just couldn't do things as, as the way I wanted to do them. And uh, like all of us, I wanted, to do, I wanted to do well. I wanted to look good. I wanted to succeed. Uh, I, I, there was an article that appeared in a magazine, and this was like in the 70s, when meditation and Eastern teachings were just moving across <coughs> California. And this magazine, and it was called The Dark Side of Meditation, this article. And I, 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 you know, it was, I was naturally interested in it. The dark side of meditation turned out to be that many people who are attracted to meditation are high achieving, what they used to call type A personalities. Is that still a word where you're just perfectionist and you drive? And I know many of you have high level degrees and have succeeded and, you know, this kind of thing. So you're going to succeed no matter what and have the willpower and the capacity to do it. So... Be but, but because of that, many people take up meditation because they're so stressed. So then they take up meditation to reduce their stress, but instead of reducing their stress, it becomes one more thing that they have to do perfectly and they have to achieve. <laughs> so, so the ultimate pressure is divine perfection. I mean, what could be worse? <laughs> so you spend all your time failing, all your time failing, and then meditation thus becomes a dark practice. I mean, actually, I thought it was very true. <laughs> and I was one of those. Now we go back to Master at Mount Washington when his, his, in his presence, everything was illuminated. So if, if you actually have any awareness of what a divine perfection really looks like, chances are there's a little space between you and it. And, you know, what, what are we going to do when we start perceiving that space? So what many people do is they become more and more stressed, they become more and more depressed, or they just begin to decide that they're nothing but failures. Or they become, there's a word for it in the Catholic Church, they call it over-scrupulosity, because they've been at it for so many centuries, they sort of know what this is. Where you just become more and more anxious to do it right. That was when I referred at the beginning, when Swami said to me once when I was getting into that one, and you make the spiritual path narrower and narrower. God doesn't want me to, you know, to eat apples. God doesn't want me to have oranges before six in the morning, you know. God doesn't want me to sleep past 4 a.m. until you make the path so small that you can't stay on it. And that was when Swami, the word I used, because that's how it felt to me when he said it, he pleaded with me, God doesn't necessarily want you to be unhappy, Asha. He said, that's your idea, it's not his. But it's just this sort of anxiety. And so I, I did that really effectively for quite some time. I set, I set an impossible standard for myself, so I got to always fail and be miserable. You know, it's like, is this really working for me? But somehow that was what I thought the path was supposed to be. 
is that we had set this impossible standard, we fail, we get to be miserable. But that was not really what was wanted. So I had to really, um, because Swami had me by the scruff of the neck, so I couldn't really get away and I didn't really want to get away, but I knew that what I was doing was not working either. So maybe I read Sister Gyanamata's book, maybe just by the grace of God the thought occurred to me that I needed to find what was true for me that, that no self-doubt could take away from me. And it actually came about in a very fun way. Um, Swamiji was very careful with his words. He always said the truth. He didn't, he was, he was very expressive, but what, whatever he said was true. He never flattered, he never tried to make you feel good with false words. So you could always absolutely trust what he said. And he didn't, he didn't flatter people. He didn't just always tell you how wonderful you were and what great work you were doing. So as a consequence, you could always believe him. That was a tremendous quality that I've, I've done my best to emulate in my life because I know how important that was. That what he said, he meant. And you just knew it. I mean, when I was learning to write, and most of what I wrote he would reject, but he would say sometimes, and he would be very exact, this is okay. <laughs> this is good. This is very good. You know, and every once in a while, this is excellent. But excellent was a lot better than okay. And it was always nuanced, just exactly. But it, one day, in a, in a somewhat unusual way, Swami was, there were a few people in the room, and he was, he was saying uh, complimentary things. I want to balance this, that Swami was always extremely supportive and very great, gr grateful. So it wasn't like he was cold in any way. But he didn't, he wasn't gratuitous in his he didn't just lavish. But this particular day, he was saying to a few people some very positive things. You know, you're doing very well with this. I'm pleased with that. I was in the room, and it was apparent that he was not going to say any such thing to me. <laughs> but I sort of managed to just <laughs> get his attention in such a way that it would be clear that my feelings would be really hurt if he said nothing. <laughs> so he said to me, well, Asha, you're very sincere. So to me, that was about the most left-handed compliment I'd heard. I thought there was just, he couldn't think of anything good to say about me, so the only thing he could say was that I was sincere. And I was crushed. I was really crushed. And so, you know, I had to carry on. But for several days, there was just this kind of little dark cloud that was just hanging over my head. And finally, Swami said, like, what? What is going on with you? Oh, well, I said, you told so-and-so that they were this, and so-and-so that you were that, and all you could say about me was that I was sincere. <laughs> you know, just like this. And I, Swami's expression was, uh, I, I mean, he, he looked so startled. And he said, Asha, he said, sincerity is everything. Whoa. And I had to really stand back and think about that. And, you know, I, I had to look up what the word sincerity meant, and then I had to meditate on it. And sincerity means to be absolutely authentic. Just that whatever you are is really who you are. That there's no pretense, that this is just the reality of it. And then I had to really sit back and be, be neutrally self-appraising. Neither, you know, oftentimes, if we can't be the best, we're certainly not going to be ordinary, so we'll be the worst. And the problem is that most of us just hang out in the mediocre middle. And the mediocre middle is unbearable, so I'm not the best, so I'll be the worst. I mean, it's really, it's a very weird syndrome, but we all play it out. <clears throat> so, uh, 
had to just humility master said is self honesty that's another definition that's really worth contemplating it's just self honesty if you are the best in your profession if you are the best violinist in the world if you are the smartest person in the room and you just are you are it's just self honesty that's a fact it doesn't make you any more important in the eyes of anybody but it doesn't serve to say oh no i'm not no i'm not this woman in our community played the flute she played it beautifully but she had a, f a confused idea of humility and often when she would play afterwards i would say oh it was just so beautiful i just loved hearing the music the way the way you play it it was wonderful no actually that really wasn't a very good performance you know she would say uh, you know i i was really disappointed no matter what i would say she would say something like that finally this went on for a while i finally said you know i compliment you and then you insult me because what you're saying to me is you're just too much of a philistine to be able to tell what good music is you think it's good but it's really terrible i said i really don't think this is the way to respond and i said just say thank you that's what you need to do because in fact she played beautifully and she knew it but but she had this confused idea so there i am and i had to think about the word sincerity and i had to realize that i wasn't very good at a lot of stuff you know i wasn't always peaceful and i had many other things that were quite disruptive to my idea of what i was supposed to be but you could rip all of that away i was absolutely sincere there was nothing it was i i mean i don't want to put myself higher than i should be but after 50 years i can probably claim something when you know when swami might have asked me are you going to leave me i would answer where would i go and that doesn't say that i know anything or that i'll you know get to god in any any in the foreseeable future it just means that i'm very sincere and from that point that became the solid ground on which i could stand that i could fail at everything but i'm very sincere and therefore i stopped having to be good at anything else you know we we get our sense of self-worth as a devotee from from whatever cannot be taken away from us and we also have to and this is the marathon question that that was asked earlier <clears throat> I mean, some people have have object when i've said this i've actually gotten emails because much of what i do is recorded and posted on the internet so i get letters from strangers that say things like if you're if you don't think you're going to be liberated in this lifetime what chance is there for the rest of us i just i don't like any of that sort of thing but i often say i've never expected not to have future incarnations i just always expect to have future incarnations and i'm trying to do my best to get good karma and have it work out well i partly do that because i'm a type a personality who who experiences the dark side of meditation if i set myself an unrealistic goal then i just get to fail all the time so i do better if i just lower my sights a little bit and be sincere and then just let the rest of it flow but what i'm trying to say here is you know we've been at this for millions of lifetimes if we have a handful of them left it's not going to be a really big problem it's quite clear that we're at the end of the story nobody comes to master to an avatar like this to a teaching like this without already having been through a lot and i'm 
I'm not going to claim this is the only path and when you finally get through these doors, welcome sister, you know, this is it, nothing like that. This is a very serious spiritual path and most people are not interested in it. It's too subtle, it's too complicated, it's just too many things. So if you're interested at all, we're at the end of the story. So if we're not in the final chapter, we're in the final quarter of the book or however you want to think about it. So there's just sort of a, a, a willingness to just let it flow. Because here's what I was trying to say. So once I could claim, and I have claimed, even today is what I claim, that that's, that's enough. I'm going to have a nice, I, I often project myself into my life review. These are just mental games that I play that I highly recommend. You know, just like the movies or the, the NDEs that people talk about, near-death experiences where they go and they meet the masters and they get to see their whole lives and all of that sort of thing. You get to see everything you've done. I often project myself into my life review, seriously, because that's the, that's the bottom line story. And I can stand there and I can have Master and now Swamiji on the other side say to me, well, you were very sincere. <laughs> and that's enough. I mean, that's enough. If all I did in this lifetime was prove my sincerity, that's enough. Because I can build on that. They can build on that, is how I would really put it more accurately. And if I manage to do a few other things, like I managed to write this book about Swamiji that I was supposed to write, that's nice. You know, good girl. You know, you also did that. Swami used to pat me on the head sometimes like that, like a little child. Good girl. You wrote the book. Well, good. I did that too. But I don't, I don't claim, I don't use any of that. The only thing I use is my sincerity. And I'll tell you how sincerity works also. This was my mantra for many years when my life was more tumultuous. I have learned. I have grown up a little. I would say... I am a very sincere devotee. This is how I feel and this is what's happened to me. This must be what happens to sincere devotees. <laughs> I would just use the logic in a circle. Instead of saying, oh, this happened to me, I must be a terrible person. How am I not living up to it? God must not love me. And then what do you get from that? You get to be really discouraged. And eventually, and I say this quite sincerely, you get to leave the spiritual path because it's too hard and you failed. And there's actually only one thing that you really need to do on the spiritual path. It's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Not quit. You just have to not quit. After all these years, I've seen a lot of cycles. And there's a few, a few people, it's very interesting. Uh, there's no need to draw a closer picture to that. People, have, people who have left the ashram, left the path, left the family for decades and then in the very end just come back I remember a man came to me the, the temple that I'm part of in Palo Alto we've been there for uh, 30 years I guess 30 years now and this man came who had been very active in the first decade and then disappeared as people do and he came back and he, he looked like life had treated him really hard you know he did not look as he looked the last time I'd seen him and he said, I tried to remember the last time I was happy. And he said it was when I was here. And so he, he tried, unfortunately, unsuccessfully to come back. But I've seen others who have come back. And I look at them, and a few of them, life has treated them pretty hard, and they're, 
They're, they're, they're even to a certain extent not quite intact. But they remembered and they came back. And I think that life is probably in many ways more successful than some of the ones who just shined it on all the way through because they figured out what was important. Swami tells a story in the path of uh, one of the disciples had uh, cerebral palsy, I guess it is, where the brain gets damaged. So the man could not walk very well and he could hardly talk, you know, just getting any words out was hard. So it's sort of hard to know who, who's actually in there because the vehicle to express himself was so damaged. You know, it's interesting to realize it's just the vehicle to express. It's not necessarily anything about the intelligence or the soul is damaged. But Master saw this man out the window and said to Swamiji, um, you know, Divine Mother is very pleased with his devotion. I think he said he's going to be liberated in this lifetime. Yes, he's going to be liberated. Divine Mother is very pleased with his devotion. And Swamiji, who was such an articulate, intellectual man, especially at that early stage, he didn't quite know what to think. So he said to Master, it must be a very simple kind of devotion. And Master said, ah, yes, that's what pleases Mother the most. So part of what we have to understand, and this is a bit about Maya, and I'll, I'll, I'll take a break in a moment and we'll come back to this. You know, the spiritual path is not the world. We have, we have, it's not that the qualities don't intersect, and I'll talk af afterwards a little bit about how that works, because the question of ambition, of family, of maya, is how the worlds do intersect. They intersect because w how we behave externally is often the gymnasium in which we develop the inner qualities that we need for God-realization. But it's just a means to develop those qualities. And once the qualities are developed, it's the consciousness in the, that we've developed that we can then apply to God-realization. That, that, that's, that's what we're really trying to achieve. And that's where on the spiritual path we have to really figure out, and this is the whole point of the class, what does success look like? And, and to break it apart a little bit. And the first part I've started with is you have to find your solid ground. And it's just between you and God, or you can talk to others about it if you need to, because sometimes we can't see ourselves clearly. But you have to have a solid ground so that no matter what happens to you, you, you never lose your grip. You can lose everything else, but you're still absolutely unshakable in one spot. And that will give you the power that you need not to quit. Okay? Why don't we take a, about a ten-minute break? Tea, water, a little, I don't say fresh air because the air is probably fresher inside, but whatever we're, <laughs> whatever you feel. We'll come back here in ten minutes. <laughs> you know, time goes by so quickly, I think that two and a half hours is a long time and it turns out not to be. So everything is just uh, an introduction to the possible. Most of you are aware of the fact that I have a YouTube channel which has uh, I, I'm, over 800 videos on it, which is just astonishing to me. And also, there's a, a podcast place because there's there were a lot of there was a lot of useful things done before we had video before we were using that. So, if you have any interest in hearing my voice longer than you've had to hear it this morning, you can do that. I'm, I'm very easy to find. Just look up my name anywhere, and you'll find it. So. 
back to what we're talking about today. Um, there, there, uh, because I, I did solicit a few specific questions, I think I would like to just now sort of answer some of what you, you all asked, and in the course of it I think I can say other things that are needed. I'll try to save some time at the end for more questions, or you can ask me afterwards. Um, one of the reasons I was trying to establish at the very beginning that we just need to find out, we have to find out who, who we are individually, spiritually. Because we, we have to build our spiritual life, think of it this way, um, our spiritual life comes out of who we are. It's the flowering of our own nature. And there's this, the question was asked about self-control and another question was asked about maya and sort of pulling us different ways. Um, let, me, let me just try to think how to, to tie that together. It, it, it's like the only way we can become who we're meant to be spiritually is by the root, the individual root that our particular karma and not even just our karma, but it's, it's like God's intention. Each one of us, for ways, and I can't even begin to answer how that works or why. I'm, I'm so, it's so remarkable to me whenever I stand in front of a room full of people, how every single one of you has a unique face. <laughs> of course, that's so obvious, isn't it? But every one of you has a unique face. And... Uh, you're at different stages of your life and different genders and different um, ethnicities or nationalities or languages no matter where but no matter where I am no individual can be mistaken for any other individual because we're, we're all following some divinely intended unique path and even though we say that a lot we, we don't understand the implications of that which is I absolutely cannot get from where I'm standing to God realization by any route except the one that is that is set up for this particular jiva. So it's just not going to be like anybody else's path. And there are of course universal laws. What we're we're trying to understand is divine law. Selfishness makes you unhappy. Restlessness increases restlessness. Attachment inevitably brings disappointment. Um, the chakras are where the vrittis of your karma are stored. I mean, there's these, there's objective realities. But inside, we are a seed of divinity. This is what I was wanting to say. Like, I'm, I'm particularly fond of apples. And apple seeds, some apple seeds are really beautiful. They're little brown, shiny, and they're so attractive. And I, you know, sometimes I'll have a little apple seed and I, I enjoy looking at it. And there happens to be an apple tree outside my kitchen window. And the apple tree doesn't look anything like the apple seed. But at some point, the only way that that apple tree could ever exist is that seed followed its trajectory. It's a living reality and it had to go through all the stages that were necessary to get from that tiny seed to the point where it was an apple tree that could create others and give. Now, what we often try to do is that we imagine, oh look, there's an apple tree. I'm going to be an apple tree. And we're a seed or a sapling or a, a sprout. And we think that by willpower, determination, or 
uh, uh, bullying ourselves, you know, self-flagellation, uh, essentially, be better, be better, be better, that somehow that apple seed is going to skip all the intermediate stages and just go from being an apple seed to being a tree. But we know that's ludicrous. But when it's ourselves, we don't think it's ludicrous. We just some, somehow think, I went through this cycle where I, I was always reprimanding myself for not being good enough. This is all part of the sincerity cycle that I went through. I was always reprimanding myself for not being good enough and I finally figured out that I was actually acting as if the person that I was was not really me. But there was another better version who lived up to my ideals better that was like in another room. And if I kept just berating this one, at some point she would say, ha ha, joke over, and then she'd bring in the perfect one, and then I could just cast this one into the rubbish heap. And it was a, it was a pretty startling day when I had to realize, actually, this is it. You know? <laughs> that I want to be an apple tree and I'm a seed that has just, you know, just begun to sprout. But once, when you have a seed that's just begun to sprout, you treat it in a certain way because you want it to grow into an apple tree and you know that if you treat it incorrectly, it'll die. And so in our lives we find ourselves, we find ourselves exactly where we are. We have families, we have responsibilities, we have relationships with people, some of whom we like, some of whom we don't like. Some of the people are supportive, some of them are very tricky. We find ourselves living in the material plane where the contrary forces of duality are always acting on us. We find ourselves, in the question that you asked, we find ourselves um, attracted to doing certain things and wanting to make things happen. And then we think somehow that the stage of life that I'm in and the conditions that are expressing themselves, that there's something wrong with all of this. But there's, there's no corner of creation where God isn't present. And there's no aspect of our own nature that, that isn't also given to us by God. There's a, one of the books that I've written is called um, loved and Protected, Stories of Miracles and Answered Prayers. I highly recommend that book. It's just, it's just so good because of the stories that are in there. It has nothing to do with the author. It's just the stories are so good. And one of the stories, I was just rereading it at the breakfast table here a couple of days ago, and there, there was one story from this man who had a very difficult life, and the first sentence is, you may think being a disciple of master and a drug addict are incompatible, he said, but I'm here to tell you that both can exist at the same time. And then he goes on to tell you the story of how, you know, he lived that life, how he was rescued from it ultimately. But, you know, in many ways you think, oh, what a terrible thing. But he was, he was forced by his circumstances to realize that you can be, we can be many things at the same time because this is the path laid out for me. So the, the first and most important thing on the spiritual path is don't be at war with yourself. And don't imagine even for a moment that the fact that you have conditions that are challenging to you that don't match your picture means that somehow you're doing something wrong. It's really like saying to the, the sprout on the seed, why aren't you an apple tree? 
or saying to your four-year-old child, you know, you should be 12. And like, how can you do that? You, you, the, you, the child just is what it is. And this is why we always talk about God as Divine Mother and God as Heavenly Father. It's so that we will get in the right relationship to the power of spirit within us and all around us. You know, God will help you. You can see your, sometimes when, if you don't raise children, you understand it. You have to see where the child is inclined and you have to take the child to where it needs to go, but you have to take it through its own inclinations. You can't help it grow up to be a pianist if it, all it wants to do is if the child only wants to play soccer. You, it just it won't work that way. The child was born to play soccer and it's only maybe eventually he'll play the piano, but he's not going to play the piano if you take away his soccer ball. And with us, Swamiji um, had this paragraph, which I'm going to quote somewhat uh, as close as I can remember, but it's very important. Well, actually, I'll, I'll start with something else. In, in the Bhagavad Gita commentary, Swami's commentary, when he was talking about the gunas, sattva, rajas, tamasic energy, and he talked about the fact, let me see how to say this, it, it, this was reconciling ambition and, and the need for excellence with the fact that this world is a dream, which is a sort of something that's a little tricky to reconcile sometimes. You know, the masters have... A self-realized person is not subject to the gunas anymore, but the rest of us are. The, the restless energy, the tamasic energy is always interfering. The striving for excellence is the effort to overcome the influence of the gunas. And so it isn't as if reaching that pinnacle of excellence is in itself a la of lasting value, but the achievement of that goal requires us to master the forces of the gunas or to resist the downward pulling energy of materialism. And if in the name of false renunciation or a confusion about the application of the principles of Vedanta, we instead don't put out energy and don't strive for excellence, um, it, almost never are we actually renouncing. What we are actually doing is caving in to the tamasic force. And that's how these particular seeds become apple trees, is that challenges are put in front of us and we are forced to put out the energy in order to overcome them. And whether that's just the play of light and darkness in the world, the responsibilities of our family, the demands of people that we pay more attention to them than to our spiritual life, all, or, or the, the inborn desire to be, you know, to start your own company and become the CEO of a very successful enterprise or to have promotions in your work and be given more and more responsibility or to write a book about Swami Kriyananda, whatever it might be, the effort to do that transforms us spiritually. And in the end, we may also have something that's worth having, a company that's worth having, a family that was worth raising, a book that was worth writing. But the real benefit of it is, is the process for us of what it teaches us. Now, there's this other part of it that Swami commented on. He said, I just think exactly how he said this. 
He said, if we strive for excellence, we may accidentally discover other values, like being attuned to a greater reality and being guided in what we're trying to do by a higher force. So as he put it, if we strive for excellence, we may also accidentally stumble upon being attuned. attuned. He said, but if we're only striving for excellence, many other qualities can set in, like selfishness or pride or disregard of the welfare of others. But if we strive first for attunement, he said, when we're attuned, excellence will naturally follow. Now, isn't that an interesting way to put it? Put it? So cutting through all of the specifics of whether you work in a company, whether you work in a bank, whether you're raising children, whether you're being an artist, whether you have bad health and you're having to just struggle just to make it through a day-to-day process, attunement is, is the single goal because what we want to feel is we want to feel, we want to feel that we are actually in relationship to a higher reality. Because what really just completely um, takes the heart out of us is when we're just, we just feel like we're all alone and there's no purpose in this. It's not the doing of it. It's the, it's the lack of attunement to a higher reality. So you come here, you learn Kriya, you learn to be a disciple. We learn these principles. You know, and the principles of master self-realization are, is not Hinduism and it's not Christianity. It's the principles of self-realization. It's understanding that within me and within my power is the power to lift my energy to the spiritual eye and to be always walking in the company of God. And that's what we're striving for. So instead of saying, is this the right circumstances? Why is this happening? Just feel like, and this is again my, my drug addict friend, he said, Master has said he, he, in, this, in this story, he says, uh, you know, Master has said thousands of things, all different pieces of advice, and he goes on to say, you won't be surprised to realize that my most favorite saying of Master during those years, he said, was, if you're going to, whatever you do, take God with you. He said, and even if you are subject to compelling forces that are other than what you would like to be compelled by, even then take God with you. And so he writes, he said, so I took Master with me to a lot of places he probably wouldn't have gone on his own. (laughs) But even that, even that, when you think about that, think about the relationship he was forging with his guru. It was it was full of trust, it was a child's it was a childlike attitude. It was the feeling of complete openness that whoever I am, I'm not going to hide it from you. Now, isn't, isn't that worth more than just always doing the right thing, you know? Because that was forged in the, in the fire of real testing. Does, do I really feel that God loves me? Do I really trust that he will save me? And the rest of the... Well, I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You're going to have to read it in the book. <laughs> but eventually, of course, he was rescued from that, mostly. And he was rescued because wherever he was, God was with him. So we have to start with... There are no accidents in this universe. There's no mistakes. If I'm born with a powerfully ambitious nature, 
then let me use that. Let me use that to overcome my limitations and let me, let me, uh, let God use me. If this is who I am and this is who I need to be, then let me bring God with me. So here I am in my office and when we are attuned, you know, a whole different level of reality can come. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't ever have to, as Swami put it to me, put a, he says you have to put a rock in the river sometimes because um, I, I always had trouble, I, I don't anymore, but I always had trouble just disciplining myself to what I needed to do. When Swamiji wanted me to write more and I wasn't doing it, he said to me, why are you not writing more? Are you too lazy, too busy, or just afraid? I said, mm, all of the above, I think, <laughs> you know. And it was just true. I just didn't want to put out the energy. I let other things distract me. And I, I just didn't feel confident that I could deal with it. You know, and that was, that was just the facts of it. And there was nothing... He, he said it to me. He, he, he let me say it out loud. And he said it out loud to me because he knew I had to persevere, that I was allowing tamasic energy to hold me down. And it, it wasn't really... I mean, the books need to be... The book needed to be written, especially the last one I just did. It needed to be written for the sake of Master's work. I, last night I was in Noida and I was talking about the culture of Ananda. And I ended up saying the culture of Ananda is Guru Seva. It's just that Guru Seva is anything that serves the cause of the Gurus, which is to help others, to enlighten others as to the spiritual path. So the book I wrote was Guru Seva. Just because Swami's life is a huge has this huge potential to uplift people if they can, if we can connect to his living presence and attune to his guidance, many, many good things will happen. And he gave his life to, to give that consciousness and so my Guru Seva is to make it more accessible. Just as simple as that. But, but the other reason I did it was because Swamiji said to me, you won't be fulfilled unless you do. And fulfilled didn't mean that I won't, you know, I won't be proud and like this. It's that the seed won't become the apple tree unless it goes through this necessary phase. So this is, once again, we have to just be honest with ourselves. We can't say, I shouldn't be ambitious, therefore I'm not. We have to say, I am ambitious, and therefore God help me to channel my ambition in the most uplifted way. In fact, ambition is a very fine quality. I have commented to some of my uh, guru bhais in America, I would like to see a lot more ambition. I see people sort of having this confused idea of the spiritual path that to put out too much energy or to be too committed or to be too determined, my word, you should have seen Swami Kriyananda. Oh my Lord, talk about determination and commitment and just any little thing he took on, he just followed it right through to the end. I remember this was, a, this was very early. He had this little meditation room and somebody had suggested that a way to insulate it against sound was to get these egg cartons. They were like about a foot square and they would hold like about three dozen eggs and they were pointy. Or maybe you've, I don't know if you've seen, like you carry them. Yeah, it's common, okay. And there, there, there were insulation. So he had covered, we were, we were all very poor in these days, so you know nothing more elaborate was possible. So he had covered his walls with these egg cartons and I believe he'd put fabric over them, but he said he could feel all those little pointy things and it was very disturbing to his energy to have those little pointy things at him all the time. 
And so he wanted to redo, he wanted to redo it, he wanted to rip all those out and then we got some smooth styrofoam and we were going to put it there and save, I think it was just Seva and I and Swamiji. Normally Swami never let anyone in his meditation room. It was the one thing he really kept. He didn't let anybody even go into it or meditate in there. But he, he needed this done and I remember we started like just after dinner and it was a big job, it was a small room but it was a big job. We had to rip out everything. We had to put all of the rest of it in and finish it again. It was like three or four in the morning before we were finished. I mean, we did not stop. We just, he, he was going to get this done and we were going to do it. I mean, it was a small thing, but it was one of the first times I just felt that willpower of his. And it was the farthest thing from, oh, whatever God wants, you know, nothing like that is. I have set my will to do this and we're going to do it. When I, in uh, my book, uh, Swami Kriyananda's We Have Known Him, I tell the story of when he was recording television shows on the Bhagavad Gita, I believe. And uh, it was when he first came to India, 2003, 2004, and he had a professional crew come into the living room. It wasn't Guru Kripa. He didn't have that house yet. He was, it was another house he was renting nearby. And I came over for some portion of that, just for a week or two. And... Uh, he, it was taking so much out of him and his physical body wasn't strong at all. He was 77, 78 by then. And uh, I fixed him breakfast one of the days and I, I set the breakfast in front of him and then I went back into the kitchen. And when I came back, he was, he was sitting there just like this. And he hadn't eaten a, a bite of breakfast and I, I looked at him. He said, I just don't have the energy to lift the spoon, he said. And, I, and then I, who often made a mistake, um, I just felt so, I wanted to protect him. You don't have to do this today, sir. You can take the day off. You don't have to do these programs. It's your own schedule. I mean, I just sort of like this. <clears throat> he said, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> Whoa. That was not the first time he'd said that to me. Oh, I'm fighting on the wrong side. He said, yes, you are, and I don't appreciate it. It was a very serious reprimand. And then later on he called Jyotish, who knew better than I did what to say. <laughs> he said, I know it's, Jyotish said, I know it's difficult, sir, but you've set your will to it and you have to do it, don't you? Swami said, thank you for understanding. <clears throat> and he did. He set his will to it and he finished because excellence is overcoming the gunas and if we allow small forces to take us away from our divine objective you know that that seed if you if you put that seed under the concrete that seed is just going to push and push and push and it's going to break the sidewalk so that also has to be part of it it's not pleasing to god necessarily just to go with the flow and so you see, this is where attunement comes in. If we're always asking God, what do you, what do you want of me? Of me, not, of, the, not of, the, of, of other people, what other people would do here, but what do you want of me? And you, the question specifically is asked, you know, of family. Because I know especially in this country, family really holds you. In America we have, you know, every system is, has, I think has its quota of misery. 
It's just like we all have our quota of misery and it's just going to be delivered to us one way or another, either by having a family or by not having one. You know, it's just either where it's just going to happen. So you, I don't say, say one is better than the other, they're just different. But you know, there's all these expectations set up that other people expect us to be a certain way. And some of those expectations are generous based on an actual uh, commitment to our welfare and some of them are just people want us to stay in the boxes in which they've put us. And they don't like it when we step out of those boxes. So the only way we can tell the difference is through attunement. Because otherwise, in our striving for excellence, we may accidentally develop other bad qualities. But if we know that this is what I'm being called by God to do, we have to stand up sometimes. And what that exact balance point is, well, the only way one finds out is by testing the water. And on one of the ways we find out is a lot of times it goes wrong. You know, Swamiji said to me once, I love this, he said, every time your ego gets involved, Asha, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> and I had just made a whole series of terrible decisions. And he was, yeah, that was exactly right. I wasn't acting from attunement, I was just acting from what I wanted and I made a whole series of terrible decisions. But that's how you learn. Because the other thing we have to have, and I mentioned this the other day, Swami's, the first attitude required for a disciple is courage. And going back to when those disciples were with Master and in His presence they saw things about themselves they didn't want to know the unwillingness to face the reality of who we are is a lack of courage. The unwillingness to stand up to the disapproval of others when their disapproval is not God-inspired. They're just trying to hold you to what they think you should be. It's quite different than people having a real selfless interest in your welfare. There's another story in that book about Swami where Swami wanted this young man to join the ashram. And uh, his response was, my mother would be very disappointed if I did that. And uh, <clears throat> Swami said, sooner or later we have, well, what he actually said is, sooner or later we all have to disappoint our mothers. But then he decided that was unkind to mothers. So he said, we have to be prepared to disappoint our mothers. And that's, that's symbolic of the whole picture because physical life is something Familial life is something, but divine life is everything. There's, there's an exchange between Master and Swamiji and Master and his own father. His father, who, you know, who was a disciple of Lahiri, who financed Master's work in America for many years, who was a deeply devoted uh, devotee. Master writes about the greatness of his father's devotion. But his father said something, uh, raised a question about Sri Teshwar's character. And Master said, if you say one more word against my guru, I renounce you as my father forever. I mean, how? That, that's really something. Physical birth is something. Divine birth is everything. If you say one more word against my guru, I renounce you as my father forever. Now, of course, his father immediately saw his error and stepped back from that. So Master didn't put it in there to say, oh, let's just renounce our fathers and our mothers right now. 
But he wanted us to understand physical birth is something, but divine birth is everything. But we have to be very careful that we're acting from attunement and not just some kind of false bravado that thinks, if I could just get rid of these people, it would be easier. Because we imagine that our external circumstances are really the problem. We don't understand that our external circumstances are the opportunity that has been given to us to develop the inner willpower to overcome the gunas. So you have to see them as your friends. These are my friends. But sometimes you also just have to say, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I'm just going to do what I know I need to do. When I asked my I asked Swamiji at a certain point <clears throat> about how I should relate to my parents at that at that time. Of course, in America we live much more separate. I left home at the age of 18. I never lived with my parents again. But by 24 I'm in the ashram and I just didn't quite know what was appropriate. Swami asked me, he said, uh, first he just asked me generally about my parents. I said, They're, they've been very supportive. They gave me an extremely good upbringing. They've always been generous, you know. They've never given me any cause to, to be anything but respectful and kind. He said, have they ever tried to draw you away from the spiritual path? I said, no, never, not at all. And then he said, well, then you owe them. You know, you owe them the duty of a daughter up to a point. If the duty of the daughter um, interferes with my life as a disciple, and of course that's a fine line, isn't it? Then God comes first. He said, if they ever try to come between you and the spiritual path, then there's no contest. It was actually very interesting because my parents were really very supportive and because of our, I think partly because of the Jewish culture where you're sort of encouraged to be original and a little bit adventurous, um, they, they were like that. It, but at a certain point after I'd been at Ananda, maybe 10 or 12 years, for reasons I don't know, they sort of decided to start being a little bit against it. Which I really, even to this day, I can't remember what exactly inspired them to do it. But I was visiting, and my father and I were out to lunch together, and he sort of starts, you know, in a slightly denigrating way, talking about what I'm doing. First thing I said to him is, I said, you raised me to think for myself. I would think you would be proud of me because I really am. And it sort of stopped him. He didn't quite know what to do with that. But then I got very serious. I said, don't ask me to choose because I won't choose you. I mean, it was a hard thing to say, but I had to say it. I said, we're fine. Just, I just said, don't do this. And fortunately, he was wonderful enough that he understood but, but that, there was no contest in my mind. So I didn't have to make a big scene about it because that lesson for me wasn't a big one. Now, sometimes it's a big lesson for me to be able to sit down and write and to then actually break away from the duties. Actually, the duties I had in, the, in, the, in my own ashram. I had all these duties, but I always let them take over. I was always letting something else take over. It was tamasic. Even though it didn't look tamasic, it was tamasic because I was being called to a different level of energy, <clears throat> but it was easier for me just to flow with this <clears throat> than to put out <clears throat> to put out the force that was necessary to plant the rock in the river. So that's the fine line that we have to walk. And, and one of the things we have to overcome is the false belief that other people are preventing you from doing what you should be doing.
I, in, in the book, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not really standing up here trying to sell my books, but I'm remembering these things. In the book, Ask Asha, uh, those are answers to questions, and those were real questions. I didn't just make those up. I didn't just, oh, this would be a good question to answer. They always came from someone. So the answers have a certain dynamism to them because I was actually communicating. But I got a letter from someone in India who was, who felt, the, a woman who felt she was being forced to get married. This is a story that is very alien to my life, but is not alien, I know, to many other people's lives. She was telling me how she was being forced, and I had to write her back honestly. No, what you're actually saying is that your home life would become quite inconvenient and unpleasant if you refused. But you know, and that's different. I mean, what we're saying is that we would lose something that we want if we don't go along. But where does, what is force? I mean, I know brutal things can happen, but we weren't talking about that. We were just talking about being at odds with people that we love. But we think that external circumstances actually control us. I mean, and sometimes they do. We can be thrown in prison, we can be killed, you know, our lives can be ended, but maybe you just let your life end. And external circumstances only define the challenge. And then we have to ask ourselves, what is really being asked of me and what is the challenge? And sometimes the challenge is, I need to be more generous and less selfish. I need to cooperate. I birthed these children, I have to raise them. I can't now just decide halfway through raising them that this is tiresome and I think I won't do it. You know, that other, other interests have come, so good luck kids. You know, you, it's just not, it's not an option. It's a commitment that I followed through. So sometimes what's being asked of us is, I just have to follow through on this and I have to find joy in finishing my dharma. There's, if you go to the YouTube channel, there's a number of classes called <clears throat> How to Love What You Have to Do Anyway. Because sometimes that is the lesson. And sometimes the other lesson, which was for me in learning to write, was I have to leave the familiar and have the courage to step into the unknown. Because a lot of times that's what people are saying, I'm being forced. No, no, you have to leave the familiar and step into the unknown. And you need a t we need attunement in order to do this. We can't just do this wildly. Well, we can, because then we'll either be right or wrong. <laughs> and we'll find out what it feels like to make mistakes. That's where the courage comes in. How will we ever learn? Swami was incredibly courageous. He just did things to find out. He ran these experiments, you know, just to see what would happen if. Because then afterwards you really know. And then when you really know, that's your next step. That's your seed becoming an apple tree. It's no longer somebody's theory. It's the solid ground I'm standing on. Does that make sense? Okay, why don't I take a few questions and see those of you who already asked them. If I didn't answer you properly, you can ask again, or if anyone else has questions, and we'll do this last. Yes, Mika. When do we know that it's whether what we're intending to do is an act of courage or is an act of foolishness? The, the question is, how do we know whether what we're doing is an act of courage or an act of foolishness? Usually by the fruits. <laughs> <laughs> which may not uh, manifest themselves until you've already committed yourself. And that's where courage comes from. But let me answer it a different way. Let me think about this for a minute. Um, a mistake, okay. Um, when Swamiji would work with us, uh, he would try to, 
he would try to help us make choices. Okay, right, the right decision is putting yourself in circumstances where it's easier to feel God's presence and it's easier to be in tune with God when things facilitate that happening. A mistake is putting yourself in a circumstance where, where that's more challenging that will make that attunement more difficult. But there's no such thing as, as ever doing anything that will make attunement impossible because attunement is always possible. It's the only thing that you have ever. I'll go back to my drug addict friend and I will you know, finish the story a little bit. He ends up being arrested. He ends up being thrown into prison. Even his, almost all his clothes are taken away from him. He said he'd lost his freedom, his dignity, and his pants at that point. And he said, but all he could think of was, I love you, God, I love you, God. And he recommends, he said, that you get thrown in prison and have even your clothes taken away. Because he discovered that no matter where he was, he still had God with him. And that was a huge turning point. So that would be a difficult circumstance for some. And many of his actions could be called mistakes. But he, he was able to rise to it. So the first thing we have to realize is we cannot separate ourselves from God by any action that we take. Not even death, nothing. So it's only that in some circumstances it's, it's easier for us because we're more in a flow. And others, if we make choices that, are, that strengthen the ego instead of diminishing it, then we just have to fight against the strengthened ego. Like, Asha, you make terrible decisions. And so I've made a terrible decision and I have all the egoic uh, mess that goes along with my having not been in tune as I should have been when I did that. But all that means is I get to learn something. And so this is courage. So the only way, at least I've found, that I can tell the difference is to do it. And I haven't observed that people who stand and do nothing out of fear of making a mistake learn any faster. And then often they, often they learn much slower because there's no energy flowing. And then, then we have completely succumbed to the tamasic power, which is fear and low energy. So big mistakes are better than fear of action. And Swami himself has said it's better to, sometimes it's better to do something, anything, rather than continue to do nothing. And the other thing he said is energy has its own intelligence, which is a very interesting phrase. When you put out energy, you often are not sure what you're doing and you find out whether it's right or not by putting out energy. And that doesn't mean just whether it, it comes to fruition, but the act of putting out energy shifts your consciousness. And then all of a sudden you're able to, to attune and perceive in ways that you couldn't before. So... In the Bible, Jesus is asked, how do you tell a true prophet from a false one? So, true guidance from false guidance by the fruits. And the fruits can be externally disastrous and internally luscious. I Certainly, the worst experiences of my life have been the best. Because when God just smashes you with his heel, that I, this, is, this is a very rather gross image, but it, it really works. I ha a tube of toothpaste with the top on really tight, and then God takes his heel and he steps right on the middle of it, and because the cap is on tight, tight the seams split, so just blech, everything just comes out all over everywhere. This happened to me a number of times in my life, and parts of me that I didn't know were there just pour out onto the sidewalk, and it's most unpleasant, and often 
humiliating. But, wow, look at that. I never knew this is who I was. I never knew these were potentials. And, you know, once you recover from the horror of the whole thing, um, you've learned something that you didn't know before. And you ask yourself, I guess the only way to get from being a seed to an apple tree was through this. And I at least had the nerve to try. And then you pick up the pieces and figure out what to do next. Okay? Another question? Really? All these people? Yes. Were you, were you raising your hand or did I? Were you adjusting your scarf? <laughs> Partly answer the question, like, but it's still like sometimes in life that divine perfection and the line between self discipline, like, too much discipline, and then you said the darker side of meditation is aiming for divine. <laughs> so, how do you balance that? You know? um, <clears throat> Swamiji was asked how much discipline is enough discipline, and he actually answered it in a very simple way. He said, that which you can do joyfully. Now, that, that's a little bit of a subtle answer. It's not so obvious. Because that joy is different than pleasure. So what you can do pleasurably is not the same as what you can do joyfully. But even in the, in the, in the uh, Gita, Krishna says, the phrase is, of what avails suppression. Meaning that it doesn't work just to be at war with yourself. You have to actually be working with your own nature and redirecting it. So discipline with joy is, I know why I'm doing this. I'm not just doing this because I have to. I'm not just doing this because God will be mad at me if I don't. I'm not just doing that because otherwise I'll go to hell. I'm, I'm doing this because I understand that this, is, this will work for me if I can just persevere. So the joy of it is the satisfaction of knowing that I'm doing what I was born to do. And that also comes back to this solid ground that you can stand on. I know who I am, I know who I'm meant to be, and therefore anything I do that, is, that builds on who I'm meant to be is going to give me immense satisfaction. And we should discipline ourselves as much as we can in the sense that it's part of trying to fight against the gunas. You know, it, it, the tamasic energy that wants us just to keep on going as we're going is not really what we're doing so much that we're, we're, that we're trying to shift as the inclination to want to do it. But as long as we believe that's really going to please us and we're just saying, no, it won't, no, it won't, no, it won't, and we're at war with ourselves. But you can say, I know, you know, I know I have enjoyed that in the past. You know, I know that many people get pleasure from whatever that might be. But now I'm going to try to redirect myself. And we're, we're all working together on this. And so that when I fail or when it, it, it persists, whatever it is, it's, it's all right. We're just, we're just working on this. Swami calls it directional development. We think development is absolute. Either I do it right or I do it wrong. That's not true. It's directional. It's, I, I think of it this way. There's two kinds of actions within me. There are the actions which I commit, and there are the actions that I am committed to. 
and I commit a lot of actions that I'm not committed to. <laughs> so I work on what I'm committed to, and then if I lose and I still commit it, I, I'm not committed to it. I can tell that this was a temporary aberration and eventually I'm not going to want to do this anymore. But if I really want to and I can't stop myself and the effort to stop myself, whether it's a rude word or an extra pint of ice cream or going watching a movie instead of doing my kriyas, whatever it might be, I'm doing it, I'm committing it, but I'm not committed to it. I, I said to one woman, I've said this more than once, but she was talking to me about she wasn't uh, able to follow through on her morning and evening meditation. And so then I asked her, how much do you meditate? And she, you know, told me like this. I said, well, you meditate regularly, don't you? <laughs> and she had to admit that she was a regular meditator. And so I said, well, call yourself that. I meditate regularly. I am a person who meditates. Instead of emphasizing that I don't meditate like this, you say, I do meditate like this. And I can call myself a meditator. I can be proud of being a meditator. I'm committed to meditation. And then some days I don't. But, so we discipline ourselves as much as we can, but that's a joyful way to commit it, to do it instead of uh, always, I'm not succeeding. And then sometimes there's just those moments where everything comes together and you, you really shift. You know, the, the change that happens, last night uh, in the group that I was in, somebody was asking me, they were asking me for the moment when I became committed. And I sort of answered that question by saying there wasn't a moment and she wanted there to be a moment. She wanted me to give her some dramatic answer, which I couldn't because it wasn't true. Um, we, we think because what we're doing is so big and glorious, we think that it will happen in this sort of big and glorious way. Um, I had the experience of instant recognition of Swamiji. Swami had the experience of instant recognition of Master. When, when Swamiji was writing the path, and as it happened, he was editing the first part, and he'd gone to this condominium of a friend in, in Hawaii, and then he invited Kalyani and I uh, to come over and help him with the editing at that point, to help him by typing and cooking and just helping make it easier. And, and he was working on the part of the book where he, he found autobiography, he went to California, he became Master's Disciple, just like that. And I already by that point had had a lot of interaction with guests at our retreat and so on. And I knew, I said to Swami, this doesn't happen for most people. Almost no one has that kind of instant recognition. I said, it comes slowly and the doubts are, have to be overcome and you meet different people and... And I said, so in many ways, people will feel if they haven't had this kind of experience that they're not really disciples. And Swami was very serious in his response. He said, I know. He said, that is a serious drawback because the experience that I had is not what most people will have. He said, but that's how it happened and I have to tell the truth. But it was interesting that he had actually, he'd actually tried to find a way to tone it down so that, it, so that more people could relate to it. Because we want big, dramatic events. And the reason we want big, dramatic events, this comes back to your question about the marathon, is because we want it to be a sprint and have it be over. This idea that this is just going to go on and on and on, <laughs> and that it's going to be 
you're just boring and you know just endless like this and that it's not going to be all bells and whistles it's like many people just change gurus really often because as soon as it gets down to the time where you're really having to do the actual work I actually I called it the bait and switch is what happens when I, when, when I was with a group of young nuns in my first ten, young nuns we were in our 20s but my young on the path uh, and we'd been on the path for five or six years at that point. And this is how I described it. You know, we all thought we just dove into the waters of spiritual life and we swam like crazy and there was the island out there and we were swimming like this. And as these things happened, the island was a lot farther away than we thought. You know, and so we were getting a little tired. We're getting a little bored. We're beginning a little restless with all of this. And so we kind of were stopping and treading water and talking to each other. But you look back and the shore is pretty far away. And you look forward and the island is pretty far away. And we coined the phrase at that time what we called the icky middle. <laughs> we're just right in the icky middle. The, the exhilaration of the beginning has begun to turn into the hard work of the icky middle. And we're not there yet, but we can't turn back and we're not at the goal. And, and on the spiritual path, we have to really understand, this is where I was saying a little while ago, success is two words, don't quit. Master says something very interesting. To those who persevere to the end, he says, I will be there. I or one of the other gurus, speaking of death, will be there to take them to the other side. He didn't say, to those who sail gloriously upright and cross the finish line, hardly, you know, hardly winded from the effort. He didn't say any of that. He said, those who persevere to the end. And you know, when I was younger, I thought, well, of course you'll persevere to the end. But whoa, you know, all these years later, I realized that's really just about the story, isn't it? And so... With discipline, coming to there and coming to the marathon, we want to be able to just put one big gesture out and just have it be done because we don't really want to have to actually transform ourselves. But the transformation of Kriya, I mean, those, those dramatic moments of transformation, sometimes they last, but most of the time, a week or two later, you can't really remember what it was. And you find yourself, you know, I've resolved now I will get up at 4 o'clock every single morning and do three hours of meditation and then I will energize twice and then I will do my yoga postures and you do it for four or five days and then pretty soon it's just gone. But what the way the, the real transformation happens is it's just, it's like, it's like water on a stone. It's just you don't even notice at first that anything is happening. But, but Kriya is a permanent transformation. And because it's permanent, it's like that seed becoming an apple tree. It's like it gets from here to there. But every time you're looking at it, you, you can't really quite even see what's changed. And so with ourselves, we just want to keep facing the right direction and pushing in that direction. And the question was asked about family and solitude and time with other people. Just do what you can and especially do what you can sustain. And if it's smaller than your ideal, I always set, I, I set for myself, I set the least, this is partly just my psychology, but it works for me, I set the least that I can do. Because then I can always do that. And then I, if I can do more than that, that's great. 
But if I set the most that I can do and then collapse from it, it doesn't give me, it doesn't give me the self-concept of a person who can be victorious. And above all, what we want is to have the self-concept of a person who can be victorious. So all of our discipline needs to be set like that. And in order to persevere on the spiritual path, we need to define the spiritual path in such a way that I can persevere. And that's where attunement comes. God is my friend. He's not my enemy. I'll do this as long as this seems like a good idea. I'll do this. And if it begins to wane for me, I'll, I'll, talk, to, I'll talk to Divine Mother about it. This isn't working for me anymore. And if we're sincere, something will open up. It always does. And, and most of all, make sure that you can do what you set out to do rather than make it impossible. Does that make sense? Okay, any other questions or thoughts? I did have a question during the break about Maya, about darkness. And I'm going to, this is going to give me an opportunity to say something that is, I, everybody has their pet peeves. I've often heard people say, oh yeah, where do you take Kriya, then your life will really become impossible. <laughs> Meaning that once you get serious on the spiritual path, people say, the darkness will increase because the fight will become more intense. I think that's a terrible way to approach the spiritual path. Because what actually happens on the spiritual path is once you have God and once you have techniques and once you have a guru, it's just like it becomes ecstatically happy. Because troubles come to everybody in life. Now that's the nature of this world. Master said, get away from my ocean of suffering. And we don't have to exaggerate it. Everybody knows how we struggle. So the last thing we want to do is to describe our spiritual path as increasing the struggle. What our spiritual path gives us is a concept of, of light, of beauty, of success, of a reason why this is happening, of, of a power that we can cling to. And it's just we become more aware. We become, it's not really that the darkness increases. It's that we've become more aware of the light. And whereas we used to just float with whatever happened and just be like a, a leaf in the breeze without any direction at all, now that we're on the spiritual path, we actually try to hold on to a point of light. And of course, if you hold on to a point of light, you become more aware of the wind that's blowing. If you just ride the wind, you don't even know it's blowing. You just get carried away and don't know where you're going. So by no means does dedication to the spiritual path increase the difficulties in your life. It just suddenly gives you an alternative to them. And when you have that alternative, then yes, you've put a rock in the river. And now the current is trying to carry you and you've decided to resist the current. But that is a reason for rejoicing. Because otherwise, one more incarnation just gone. You know, incarnations just sail by so fast. At the stage of life that I'm in, I'm just so impressed that just incarnations just sail by. And so we really have to make this decision just to do it. Darkness will come. Every life has a quota of misery. This woman came to Swamiji and she was explaining all the difficulties in her life. And Swami said, he said, yes, but now that you're a disciple, you understand, you know, that they're, they're taking you to God. She just kept complaining he said that about three more times, and then finally he just gave up. He decided, well, she just wanted to be miserable, so he would let her be miserable, because she couldn't hear his answer. And his answer was, oh yeah, 
I'm an apple seed becoming an apple tree and everything is for a purpose now. God has reached out and he's pulling me toward him. And as he pulls me toward him, all these other things that I've been clinging to, they, they have to be taken away from me. But why would I lament that? Or I'm, now I'm being given an opportunity to become great. And no, it's not as easy as just blowing in the wind. But really, if you just blow in the wind, just one more lifetime gone away. I mean, look at people who have no spiritual life. I mean, I don't mean they have to know they're on the spiritual path, but have no spiritual qualities. People with spiritual qualities, whatever they call themselves, always look different than people who don't. And yeah, there's an effort involved. That's just the way God made it. Master used to compl- Master had a Master had an argument with Divine Mother. He said, "He said, why must you always teach your children through suffering?" So I feel if Master himself objected, I think we can object. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I have to speak for myself. Unfortunately, it works. There are many things I never would have learned if I hadn't been pushed to learn them. So, any other questions or thoughts? Yes. Um, so, maybe I read somewhere, didn't believe in telling people, uh, sermonizing them too much. Right. So, like, uh, at one place it's written that I tell someone his mistake once, and then after 10 years, I again see what uh-huh. he's up to. So, my question is that uh, in a spiritual path, one is not it's about self-transformation, uh, so we cannot tell others too much right. to change. Right. So what about children, huh. as a mother? Uh, okay. Swamiji, I mean, the story that you tell about how Swamiji would give someone a little bit of advice and then wait years before he'd give them more, and he, he didn't just sit down with people and say, you must do this, you must do that. What... And then, and how does that relate to raising children? Here's here's the here's the unifying principle. Swamiji sincerely desired to help people. He had no position. He had no attachment. He he had a tremendous desire to help people, but he didn't have a need for people to be different than they were. So, as a consequence, he was capable of always thinking in terms of what will work. Not what do I what do I need to say? What do I want to say? He would always he was able to figure out what will this person respond to, how and when shall I offer it? And raising children is exactly the same. I mean, uh, parents have a profound responsibility that they cannot abdicate, and you cannot just say, oh, you know, it's, a, it's he has a full soul; he can do what he wants. No, that's not at all true. Children are there to be directed. But what you have to ask yourself repeatedly is what will work? And if you just say, how can I be effective in this responsibility? Because that's all Swami was doing. He would tell person, he would, he would have and may well have given somebody advice every 15 minutes if he thought that would work. If he was more circumspect, it was because he knew that they would only be receptive to this comment now and that comment later. And if he said all this stuff when they weren't receptive to it, who is he serving? 
So it's very difficult with young children. I mean, I've watched and I've, I've worked with children enough to know. You want to say, pick up your shoes, pick up your shoes. No, pick up your shoes, pick up your shoes, pick up your shoes! You know, you just... But after a while, it's not effective. So you have to... And, and I'm, I can't give you parenting right now, but that's what you have to constantly ask. Not what would I say, but what will work. And that, that, that requires a tremendous amount of energy, but that's the job. And that's why renunciates don't have children, because it's a giant job. But once you've got it, you don't, as Swami said to me, you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. You, have to, you get out of karma by mastering the challenge of it. And you know, I mean, this couple came to Swamiji once because their 13-year-old son was giving them a lot of trouble. And uh, they sat down and they were explaining this big issue. And Swami's first comment was, well, sometimes parents have to accept that, you know, they just got a lemon. <laughs> that expression means that they got one that was flawed. You know, that one of your children is just a lemon. He's just not a good kid. And, I mean, the parents were just horrified. <laughs> you know, like Swami said, my, my firstborn son is a lemon. <laughs> you know, it's like terrible. But he just let that sit for a couple of minutes because the parents, they, they weren't able to actually impersonally evaluate the son. He's my son, he must be good. If he's not good, it must be my fault. So he said, well, maybe he's just a flawed person. And, you know, nothing you do is ever going to work. And then he said but I don't think so. And then they were able to have the discussion. But that's what you have to be able to stand back far enough and say, who is this child? And, and um, here's a technique you can try. I find it works with adults. It also works with kids too. You, you, you not only pray to God, you pray to the superconscious dimension of the child. And you just look at your little five-year-old or eight-year-old and you say, what are you trying to accomplish and how can I help you? And I've certainly found when I'm just completely don't have no idea what to say, when I ask the soul of the person silently, what am I supposed to do with you? Very often their divine wisdom will come into your head and you'll say something you'd never considered before because you're all in this together. And you can see how much self-discipline, attunement, and determination it would take to be able to stay in that kind of consciousness with your children, which is why they're given to us. Because we get to become saints. At least potentially. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we take just five minutes. Let's just, um, let's sit in a meditative way. Let's try very deeply, and this one meditation won't be sufficient, but let's try very deeply to just, as much as we can, just relax into the center of our spiritual self. Just letting go as much as possible with all our, our ideas of who we're supposed to be, all our aspirations and hopes of who we might like to become, And just simply settle into that deep part of ourself where we know Divine Mother, Master, whatever deity you may worship, whatever image of God is your own. 
where we just settled in deeply in that safe, unquestioned relationship. looking out through the spiritual eye, looking into the spiritual eye. Feel ourselves free. That all the complexities of our lives are just kind of like a vague mist around this single point of relationship to God. It all is there, it all has to be dealt with. But who I am is that single point of connection with God. And He has sent me here. He is guiding me. He's walking with me. I am never alone. I have a secret friend. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramhansa Yogananda, saints of all religions, we offer our lives in service and devotion to you. Bless us that the aspiration of our hearts be fulfilled, that we live in this world in constant remembrance of your loving presence within. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Shanti.